hello everybody and welcome back to the Practice Makes Faithful podcast. Um, I'm Ben Patterson and I'm joined as always by Paul Hubar. Yeah, glad to be here this morning, Ben. We've got a lot to, uh, to talk through and, and discuss yes, and do. I hope some things that will be helpful for the folks that are uh, out there in listening land this, uh, you know, this, yeah. this episode. Yep. Yeah, I'm looking forward to diving into this. We're on a little bit of a different schedule today. We usually shoot this on Mondays. Although yep. it was, it's Labor Day week here, so we right. took the day off yesterday. Did you do anything fun for your Labor Day, Paul? Uh, you know, with, with all the rain, we didn't do a whole lot. We got out yeah. uh, and played a little tennis on the neighborhood tennis courts uh, come afternoon, but, but really... Yeah, it was such a soggy, wet mess of a day here that, uh, yeah, that we didn't was. get to do a whole lot. So um, <laughs> not as bad as it was uh, up in kind of northwest Georgia with, you know, them receiving a foot of rain up there and, and, and kind it's of... A foot of rain? Yeah, oh. pretty catastrophic flooding too. So so grateful right. that that was not our lot yeah. Uh, yeah. over the weekend, but, uh, but we did get a lot of rain and the ground is soggy, wet, and messy. So... Uh, so no, we didn't do a whole lot, but we did. We did enjoy a little bit of good family time together, which was nice. Groovy, groovy. Yeah, I had a good, just good day of rest yesterday. It yes. was uh, it was really good. So yep. now we are starting. We're, we're coming off of a day of rest. We're recording a little earlier than usual. So yeah. um, early let's, morning. Uh, yeah, let's dive into this thing. Okay. Um, so we are in our series, the way back. Um, we are, this series is what we've been talking about on our Sunday morning service, uh, servants here and also tying into your book by the same title. Mm-hmm. And, uh, this week we're in part five. So Sunday morning we had message five of the series, chapter five of the book. Um, and, uh, so, so Paul, if anyone is joining us for the first time, want to give us that quick recap now, yes. <laughs> as we're getting five yeah. parts in yes. the quick recap gets a little bit more challenging. So, so if you are new, I would say actually go back and listen to just you know, pause it right here. Go back, listen to those first four parts, do it that way. But go ahead and give us that quick recap for anyone who just needs a little reminder. Yeah, that, that'll work. Um, so if you remember in, in episode one and part one of this mm-hmm. uh, message series as well, if you're following along uh, with that, we, uh, we kind of just laid the foundation that, that the worldview that we are embracing is the one that has God as creator. Yeah. Okay, so we're coming from that perspective. So for anybody that doesn't buy into that, uh, that philosophy in a sense, um, we just asked you, would you come along with us anyway? Mm-hmm. Would, you, mm-hmm. would you put yourself in the frame of mind that said, what if there was a God who created everything that we see, which led us to, in part two, asking the question, what does creation tell us about the Creator? And so we looked at the beginning part of Psalm 8 in that, you know, just looking at the fact that uh, there was this, this uh, the writer of the Psalm, uh, King David of Israel, was in awe of God and actually was able to declare by looking at creation that God was majestic. Oh Lord, our Lord, mm-hmm. how majestic mm-hmm. is your name in all the earth. I see the evidence of you everywhere I look. So by the uh, part three, we're moving into, um, the second half of Psalm 8, where David expresses, uh, again, he was in awe of God because of creation. The second reason he was in awe of God uh, in that psalm is that he was amazed that the God of creation loved him and cared about created humanity. Mm-hmm. You know, he looked out and saw creation. He felt so small in comparison to creation. Um, and so the fact that God loved him was just amazing to him. And so, um, you know, we said out of that, that it's, it's just God's nature to, to love and desire uh, a relationship with created humanity. And we, like David, we asked the question, well, what are human beings that you are mindful of us, that you would care for us, but, but it's in his nature to love and care for us. So that's just, yeah. just who God is. And then last week, um, we looked at the fact that 
Uh, even though God extends this relationship to us, the God of all creation, again, remember, creator God, when you see the majesty of creation, it reflects upon the majesty of God, then realize that a God who has the ability to create must be even more majestic than what we see in creation. So here is God, the God of creation, extending relationship toward us. And the question is, what would we do with that relationship? And the truth is, if we look uh, throughout history, if we look on the pages, in the pages of Scripture, if we look even in our own lives, we'll see the truth of that is that over and over again, we have rejected the relationship that God has offered us. And instead of choosing His way, we've chosen mm-hmm. our own way. So that's kind of, that's where we wrapped mm. up last week. That's good. Um, so hopefully that was a quick enough summary yes. of, of where we No, that was well done. So. Well done. <laughs> you got a couple more weeks of this. We yes. had eight parts, Paul. So <laughs> that's right. I'm going to have to... Keep getting more around. succinct as we go. Yes. That's, that's, uh, that's, I think that's the, the story at this point in time, the nature of the beast. So that's good. So we left off this spot that we have rejected that relationship that God offers to us. Yeah. Um, so where where'd you bring it this week in part five? Okay, um, so, so I'm going to do something that we, we didn't do in, in the actual message on Sunday morning, but something that I did talk about in the book real quickly. And, and I just want you to, to think about this, especially if you're one that's familiar with uh, with Scripture, with the Bible to some degree, you'll know that there are quite a few stories on, in the pages of Scripture that, um, that show these moments, that highlight these moments when human beings, just like you and me, came face to face with not-so-human beings, with these mm-hmm. uh, you know, otherworldly beings that, that we call angels, or the Bible call angels, calls angels. And, and you know, when, when we think of angels, I think we often are moved to... Uh, to think of maybe just these very peaceful, glowing creatures, or yep. maybe what we would see on the front of a Valentine's <laughs> the card. You know, we see the pop culture yeah. version of angels. You know, Cupid with his bow, and and there's you know there's a heart instead of an arrow. You know, or in the, the pointy end of the arrow. What do you call that? Which has always seemed a little bit creepy. Arrowhead. Yeah. Cupid. The idea. He's always seemed creepy to me, but Cupid is creepy. I. I do want to flesh that out further at some point, but I don't know if we have time to, to, to understand the, creeping, the creep factor of Cupid uh, right now. But, um, but whatever our vision of angels uh, tends to be, the pop culture version, yeah. or maybe even sometimes uh, what came out of you know, more the medieval era into the, the modern era, the, the thinking about angels, it, it often doesn't match what we see in Scripture. Mm-hmm. Right, and so in the book I share that actually, you know, there was a time when I was when I was younger. I mean, much younger. You know, so so when I was a kid, I mean, probably less than ten years old. Um, you know, I had this vision in my mind that it would be really cool to be visited by an angel. Now that came about even you know, and and there's some scriptural basis maybe for this thinking about guardian angels to some degree. Although we've definitely popularized that idea as well. Mm-hmm. You know, so you think about your guardian angel maybe and. And so you've got this really neat view, and I thought, man, wouldn't it be really cool if, if I was visited by an angel or if I had this angel that I could talk to all the time? You know, so I just, I just you know, very, very yeah. young kid. So I had these ideas, um, you know, thinking in my mind what angels would be like or it would be like to have a conversation with an angel or to see an angel face to face. But when you go to Scripture, you see over and over in these stories where people meet angels, uh, often the first words out of the angel's mouth are, don't be afraid. Yeah. <laughs> you know, don't be afraid. Why? Yeah. Because all of a sudden the people are either, you know, they're on the ground panicking, they're backing away, they're frightened out of their mind. The angel can see it in their eyes and their face that, uh, that they're scared to death because angels are, are truly frightening beings. Mm-hmm. 
And, and they just, you know, they, they carry, I would imagine they carry some of the, they carry the spirit nature of God, certainly, uh, but maybe a piece of his, um, you know, his majesty, his otherworldly majesty is somehow in these angelic beings as well. And so when we see them, we realize human beings, as we're human beings, we realize they are so different from us. They, they have this power, they exude this power that is so different from any kind of power we have uh, that the proper reaction is to, is to be terrified, mm-hmm. right? So again, you and I, we, we probably don't have, you know, we don't have the benefit of having seen angels, but, but we can look at the stories in scripture and we can actually see that. And to take that a step further, even though we have been trying for this, these first few weeks of this series to say, what is God like? Who is God? Let's try to get a good glimpse of God. Let's even go out in nature and try to, to see through creation what God might be like. And as we're in awe of creation, as we observe the majesty of creation, let's then take that and, and maybe transfer that to God and multiply it by 10 billion or whatever you, know, you mm-hmm. want to put on it. Um, and then maybe we can try to understand God. We still, I think, struggle. And so what we did this week is actually go to what I think is one of the wildest scenes in all of Scripture. Um, now, maybe you have to exclude the entire book of Revelation if, if you're going to say that, because that's those are the wildest scenes in all of Scripture. But but up to the scene, yeah, yeah. the scenes that we see in Revelation, this certainly is one of the craziest scenes. It comes from Isaiah chapter six. It's what you know. Often the the you know Bibles, if you you know if you have a heading in your Bible, they'll often you know refer to this as the the commissioning of Isaiah. Isaiah's commission, something along those lines. And it takes us to this scene where, um, where Isaiah begins this way. He says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And when he says the Lord, he's talking about Jehovah. He's talking about God. He says, I saw him high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So right away, he gives us kind of this, um, this stamp within the framework of history saying it was, it was the same year that King Uzziah died. But he's mm-hmm. also making this contrast, I think. So in the year that the earthly king died, I actually was taken to the throne room of God and I saw the king who would live forever, mm-hmm. the king who does live forever. And I saw him with my own eyes. You know, he says, I saw him. I saw the Lord. He was high and exalted, seated on a throne, leaving there's no doubt about the fact that I saw royalty, but I saw the royalty of all creation. I saw God himself. And so then he tells us about these angels. He says they had six wings. What were the angels doing? Um, they were calling to one another, saying to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. So um, we pulled that apart real quickly in the message. Do that in the book as well. And I think it would be worthwhile to do that again this morning. Um, as, as the angels are singing to one another, crying to one another, calling to one another, they're singing this song, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We've got quite a few songs that, that echo those words. As they were saying those words in the Hebrew, it's, it's significant and unique, very different from our, uh, the, the way we do things in English. When we modify uh, a word that qualifies um, or that, that expresses the quality of something, we will put something like very or extremely or quite in front of it. Mm-hmm. So we might say that, is, that was extremely fun. That was very good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was you know, quite different. You know, so we're expressing the quality of something um, and we're putting a modifier on it. What happens in, in Hebrew is you might repeat that word. You know, so 
for the angels to say, or for the angels to be crying about God, holy, holy, they're expressing the quality of His holiness. Yeah. For the angels to cry, holy, 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 so three times in a row, they're saying in, in a sense that God is immeasurably holy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important for us, uh, especially as we're trying to understand God. It was, it was pivotal for Isaiah as he got an understanding of God to see the holiness of God. I, I mentioned on Sunday morning that I think, I think very sadly so, we, we live in a time and age where, where not only the world, certainly, but also the church, I think we are missing an understanding of the holiness of God, the set-apartness of God. Now, mm-hmm. we understand yeah. and, we, and we want and we desire, and it's good because there's this, there are these twin, and, and they almost seem like competing realities, but they're not competing realities at all. They're, they're, it actually speaks, they both speak to, to key elements of the nature of God, that, that God is relational, in his pursuit of us so that we can call God Abba, Father. This deep intimacy, this incredible familiarity, but at the same time, God is also incredibly set apart. He's holy, holy, holy. And so they look in our minds like competing realities, but actually the reality with God is these things, go, they go together quite well. He, mm-hmm. He's both set apart and he's also quite near, okay? So, but but we're, we're missing sometimes, we're forgetting the set apartness of God, and I think it's important for us to see that God is holy, holy, holy. He's immeasurably holy. Then the angels cry out, the whole earth is full of His glory. This is very similar to what David, King David said in Psalm 8, basically saying the evidence for God is everywhere. Mm-hmm. Everywhere in the earth, the earth is full of His glory. Okay, so um, Isaiah sees at that point in time, as the angels are singing the sound of their voices, um, it, it shook the doorposts and the thresholds within the temple. The temple is filled with smoke. He has this moment where he sees God. He sees the angels worshiping God. And then he's moved, as, as many are, you know, when they have seen angels before, to maybe fall to their knees, although we don't see that. Um, but we do see what Isaiah exclaims and cries out. He says, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Okay, so we have this scene where Isaiah is taken to the throne room of God. He gets a glimpse of God, even that glimpse of God uh, in his temple, in his throne room. And the way that the angels are worshiping God moves Isaiah to realize, I'm ruined, I'm toast, I'm undone. And we, we talked about that on Sunday morning and I think it's, it's kind of neat for us to, to pull this apart just a little bit as well. Um, I actually, I love this phrase that Isaiah uses, I am ruined, or the way that we translate that. Most English translations will use that phrase, I am ruined. And, and I use the imagery um, of, of maybe going to Europe, you know, and seeing some of these beautiful, beautiful castles, especially the ones that have been restored. You see uh, this ancient medieval artistry in, in, in the, even the architecture of, of what was done hundreds of years ago. So you can see this, you know, some of these have, have weathered time uh, and some of these have been restored so that they again look beautiful. They look whole, they look put together. They look like they would have looked centuries ago. Mm-hmm. But then you may go to a town where that's, that's not what happened or that castle was not cared for or maybe in some sort of a battle it fell, um, you know, and, and, it, and what you see there is this shell of what once was. Mm-hmm. So you see mm-hmm. what, what's actually called a ruin. You know, so you compare that with a castle that is whole, and then you see the castle that is ruined, and you get got this imagery now in mind of what Isaiah is saying. 
In a sense, Isaiah is pointing out maybe this contrast, I thought I was whole, but I'm actually ruined. Or another way of translating that is to say, I'm undone. So Isaiah may have had this image of himself that he was done, you know, that he had arrived or that he was put together okay. And what he sees in the presence of God is that he's actually undone. So whatever image he had of himself, being undone is this idea of being taken apart, right? So in the presence of God, whatever image I had of myself is being taken apart. It's actually being pulled apart. Um, so as I'm seeing God clearly, I'm starting to see myself clearly. That leads him to say, here's what I recognize about myself. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And right now I've realized that my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. So the everlasting King, the real King. And it moves him to this place where, where maybe, I don't know, I, I, I don't know Isaiah's past, but maybe for the first time, he finds himself embracing this attitude of humility, which is really what Sunday morning and what even yeah. the rest of our yeah. conversation is going to be about. Um, Isaiah finds himself truly humbled mm -hmm. before mm -hmm. God in that moment. That's good. So, I mean, we can see, like, throughout Scripture, we do see humility is a really big deal for God, yes. to God. That <clears throat> it's something that He wants for us, something He wants of us, mm -hmm. um, but... It also seems to be something that we as people really struggle yes. with. Um, and you, know, you even said in the book that you believe that our culture has a particular problem with humility right now. Yeah. Um, so help us understand why you say that. Um, yeah, yeah. Tell us about why. Like, why would you say humility is such a big problem for people and specifically in our cultural moment? Yeah, I think... Um the reality, one of the realities, or one one of the things I think that is central to human nature is, is our desire desire to distinguish ourselves from others. You know, to achieve, to to experience success, and so to do that, we're going to look to build ourselves up. You know, I think even about the, you know, and I. I've been uncomfortable on a number of occasions when I'm writing a resume because really what you're doing on a resume is you're listing all of yeah. your accomplishments, yeah. right? Here are all the things you ought to know about me that set me apart from, mm -hmm. from others, mm -hmm. you know, that set me apart from maybe other candidates for a job or set me apart from uh, other people who you might be thinking of that, that you might even wonder, would they be a fit for this job? So no, let me tell you why I am better mm -hmm. than mm -hmm. these other folks, right? And so. You know, uh, that's just part of what we do. And, and I, you know, I can understand if, you know, if, if I'm in the place where I'm hiring for a job, I'm, I'm wanting to hire the best candidate. Yeah. Um, we got commercials, you know, that I hear all the time. It's like, are you looking for the best candidate for the job? You know, and it's, it's, that's what we're looking to do. You want to hire the best candidate for the job. And so you're trying to see how does someone stand apart from others? Um, but this kind of thing starts really young. You know, I think about, um, you know, being on the playground or on the sports field as a, as a young kid and wanting to distinguish myself in those moments from others. You know, mm -hmm. so on the playground, mm -hmm. if we're playing unorganized sports, whatever it happens to be, who wants to be the last one picked? Although oftentimes, you know, because I was small, I was one of the last ones picked. So for me, I even, you know, I had what, what's called, like I had a chip on my shoulder is what we often say about that, right? So I, I wanted to prove myself. Well, in proving myself, Often what that meant was for me to look good, I had to make someone else look not as good mm -hmm. so that I could mm -hmm. climb the ladder. Mm -hmm. And so really a lot of our human existence is spent 
trying to climb the ladder. We play this comparison game. Um, you know, we compare ourselves to others. And so I think, you know, this, this is just kind of what we do. And it creates, um, it creates unhealthy competition among people within systems at times. Um, yeah. You know, and, and it creates also really an atmosphere for dysfunction in our relationship with God as well. Because we may get to the place where in comparing ourselves to others, we feel pretty good about ourselves. And if we take that attitude and transfer that to our relationship with God, we're in trouble pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So create, create this environment for serious dysfunction. You know, it says um, Proverbs 16 says, and that proverb is then quoted in the New Testament as well. Um, but you know, that, that pride is what comes before a fall. Yeah. Right. So, you know, we set ourselves up to fall when we're prideful. Um, we see as well uh, this idea that, that God actually opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And that idea of God opposing the proud is, is almost like God coming in battle against yeah. the proud. You know, so, so, yeah, as you said, I mean, humility is a big deal to God. And I think it's because of the damage that we do when we embrace pride. Yeah. The attitude of pride, yeah. it, relational damage, you know, human being to human being, but it also sets the stage for this incredible uh, dysfunction in our pursuit of God as well. Well, I like how you bring up the, the problem with the comparison, mm-hmm. like towards other people aspect of it all, and of using that <clears throat> metric of how we relate yep. to God, how we relate to people is now how we relate to God. I see myself as better than pe- better than yes. others, and you lift yourself up. But I would also say, conversely, I think at times you can have folks who are on the opposite side of that, because often you can also fall into that comparison game mm. and constantly be putting yourself down, constantly be deprecating of yourself because I don't have what this person has. This person is happier than me. This person is richer than me. This person is whatever. And you're constantly putting yourself down. Then you take that in relating to God to where, I I don't know. I I could see that also leading to some problems as well of having just an extremely self-deprecating image of yourself. Yeah, so so we're gonna talk about narcissism in just a minute. Um, and what's interesting about narcissism is people will often pair narcissism with pride, but that's not necessarily the case. Hmm. Narcissism can, can be you know, paired with a, an unhealthy positive view of yourself, but it can also be paired with an unhealthy negative view of yourself. All that, all that, all that you have to have to, to truly embrace um, you know, the, the attitude or the value of narcissism is not a value really, but um, all you have to do to be narcissistic is to be completely focused on yourself. Hmm. Whether it's a positive view of self or a negative view of mm, self, if you're completely good. self-focused, you can still be a yeah, narcissist. That's really good. And so, you know, the, the question is not, um, is my view of self unhealthy on a positive side or unhealthy on the negative side? It's do I have a healthy view of self and my argument, I think, and, and what we see from Scripture is the only way we get to where we have a healthy view of self is when we see God clearly yeah. and we start to see ourselves clearly um, in that what we find. And we can, we can look at this, you know, uh, some more, and then we will as we go, I think. But, you know, in, in Isaiah 64, Isaiah says that, that all of our righteousness, basically before God, our righteous acts are like filthy rags, mm-hmm. right? So when we see ourselves in the light of God, we realize man, 
everything good I try to do is actually not even close to good. Mm-hmm. But then we see in that God saying, and at the close of the message on Sunday, when we come to that place where we embrace humility, God says, I can work with that. God comes and cleanses yeah. us. God shows that yeah. He values us and says, I'll work with that. Let's go. I mean, think about Isaiah who probably fell on his face before God and is the same one who says all of our righteous acts are, are, are like filthy rags before you. That same Isaiah was loved and used by God as a prophet. Mm. And so what we find, and maybe you know, we'll talk about this some more, is that there is, you know, what's unhealthy is when we're at this place where, um, where we're very worried about self-esteem and self-image. Yeah. What we can find before God when we see Him clearly and see ourselves clearly is a healthy self-worth or maybe even like a God worth, you know, God gives us value. It's not the things that I do that give me value. It's the fact that I'm deeply loved by God. That gives me the value I need. And it seems like what I'm hearing from you is like one of the the problem, maybe maybe at the root of that is it's where are we going to find that value? Is it through comparing ourselves to others, whether that brings you up or brings you down, or is it in comparing ourselves to God, which always puts you in the proper place yes. of where yes. where he sees you. Yeah, um, it takes it takes your accomplishments and quickly shows that my accomplishments have very little value, yeah. but my being to God, who I am, has incredible value to him. Mm, yeah. Right? So so if we're in a sense if we're creating ourselves self-worth by the things we do, um, it's going to lead us to a place of dysfunction and it's going to lead us to a place of unhealthy functioning on one side or the other, because we're either going to say, I, I do so many great and good things, or we're going to say, I can't do anything good. Yeah. And, and in that, we're going to find our value because of the fact mm-hmm. that we do or don't mm-hmm. do good things. Yeah. If we say, no, I realize that the things I do in comparison to God and the things He does are like filthy rags, but my value, my worth is not based upon the things I do. It's based upon the fact that I'm loved by my Creator, and then will I surrender in faithfulness and do the things that He wants me to do, Mm -hmm, right? And mm -hmm. so I know we're getting ahead of ourselves just a little bit with that, but I think it's important because that is a distinction that um, I think many of us, you know, I, I don't know, I think I make that distinction from time to time, but it's also something I'm quick to forget. If yeah. that makes sense, yeah. you know, even knowing that I'm deeply loved by my Creator, it's easy for me to slip back into this uh, posture of finding my value in the things I do, mm-hmm. or feeling mm-hmm. badly about myself because of the things I'm not doing. Right? Yeah. So, so yeah, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say. So we'll probably we'll circle back to some more of that in in a bit here. But let me just kind of bring us back to that mm-hmm. question of of how do you see in just in our current cultural moment of like why is this such a problem of humility yeah. why are people struggling so much with humility well let's let's just first point out that it really truly is a problem yeah. um you know because some people may be saying okay you're just saying that what evidence do you have to actually support that it truly is a problem and so yeah i just want to go real quickly and, and reference um, a book called the narcissism epidemic it's uh, written by uh, Gene Twing, uh, Twingy and uh, Keith Campbell. Um, and, you know, Campbell and Twingy are 
um, have become authorities on this subject over the last several years. I mean, the 2009 book, in the last several years, they've done a lot of interviews, and Campbell has done even a whole lot more research to, uh, to go and support this. But one of the things that they say in, in their book is that by 2006, so this is now what, um, I'm not great at math, 16 years ago, right? Um, so 2006, is that right? 16 years? Um, yeah, it is. Uh, yeah. 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 It's about right. 2020 yep. would be 14, add two more, we got 16. Mm -hmm. So you, you didn't tune into the podcast to listen to us do math. But uh, uh, by 2006, one out of four college students agreed with the majority of the items on a standard measure of narcissistic traits, right? Um, so basically what we're talking about is stuff that correlates with the DSM-5, which is, and that would have been DSM-4 then. Um, here are these personality traits that um, would, you know, if you, if you say yes to these or here are these, uh, behavioral actions, um, that if you say yes to these, if this characterizes who you are and your actions, even your thinking, your values mm -hmm. as a person, you may lean um, toward narcissistic personality disorder or maybe just have some characteristics of a, a personality that's struggling with narcissism, right? Okay. So um, by 2006, one in four college students agreed with the majority of the items on a standard measure of those narcissistic traits, okay? And said, yes, that's me, Yeah. right? So self-identifying and saying, that's, that's me. Yes, mm -hmm. I think that. Mm -hmm. um, if you go um, with, with the, the diagnosed version of that, that is called narcissistic personality disorder. Now the DSM-5, um, nearly one in 10 Americans in their 20s, okay? So we're talking about young people. Mm -hmm. This was back mm -hmm. in 2009, uh, young people. Um, one in 10 Americans out of their 20s and one out of 16 of all those, um, of, of all ages basically, had experienced the symptoms of narcissistic personality disorder. Now th that doesn't mean that we would put that diagnosis on somebody. I can say in my time working as a clinician, I did diagnose several people with narcissistic personality disorder. And you can see the way that manifests in their lives, very, very much self-focused, everything is about them. Uh, they're not worried about others. The way I describe this sometimes to my clients is, you know, basically they're, they're a boulder rolling down a hill, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? And, and they're not worried about anything else in front of them. Um, every now and then if they, you know, if they hit, they're going down and, and the other, you know, there are some people that are basically grass, you know, um, that boulder going down that hill doesn't even notice the grass as it's rolling over the grass because it's so worried about itself, not worried about anything else. Oh. It, you know, if it hits somebody that's a little more rigid and a little more, um, mm -hmm. you know, firmly rooted, like, like a tree, it may notice a deflection, but it doesn't change its path. It keeps going down. And really how much damage is done to the boulder? Well, nothing, it just redirected it for a second, but there may be immeasurable damage done to the tree. You know, that's what people who, who struggle with narcissistic personality disorder, that's kind of an image of them. They, they don't really realize the damage they're doing. Yeah. They're so focused yeah. on their path and on their course, and it's all about them they don't see the damage they've left in their wake. They don't, they're not even worried about that. So I think it's important that you point out that that narcissistic tendency is not, that doesn't always manifest itself oh, yeah. in pride. Because as I was just thinking about this, Absolutely. I see a lot of working in youth ministry, a lot of young people who really struggle with their self image, a lot of times like perpetuated yes. through social media. Yes. I see yeah. this person has this thing that I want and this, that and the other. and. Um, so I see a lot of the self-deprecating traits, but yeah. I see where yes. it is, once again, it's 
it is fueled by an image that's very self-centered. It's about me. It's about, do yeah. I have what I want? Am I getting it? Am I happy right now? It, it is a very self-centered worldview that is fueling that. Yes. And to see that as a part of that narcissism, like typically you hear narcissism, we think of like the just very arrogant, prideful person. Like that's the stereotype yeah. that I think we tend to look at, but mm-hmm. that is, I think that's really helpful as you're clarifying that. Yeah, it's not necessarily, and what, what we know uh, and we've seen this for years, and it doesn't, you don't have to be a psychologist or a counselor. You, you know, I'm sure we've all experienced this to some degree, is that oftentimes what we see when somebody appears very self-confident or maybe even uh, you know, somebody with a very truly yeah. dominating personality, yeah. um, when you start to peel things apart, and certainly as I've experienced this as a yeah. counselor, when That's I start so to pull back the layers of the onion with somebody, I'll actually find that this is actually a very broken person who struggles mm-hmm. with self-confidence. Covering a lot below the and surface. That's right, yeah. so it's covering a lot below the surface. You know, you mentioned about our young people though, with, and I think we could talk about social media for just a second, yeah. um, because yeah. social media has only heightened the pursuit of mm-hmm. a particular mm-hmm. type of self-image. You know, whether it's uh, YouTube or Instagram or Facebook, TikTok, you know, I think the reality is we live in a culture where everybody can take their best shot at becoming an influencer, right? Yeah. And so, um, and, and even if you're, you'll never be an influencer, you can at least make those kind of posts um, and, and receive the gratification of having other people's like, uh, you know, to, to like your post or to love your post, or even, you know, now on Facebook, they have the wow face, um, you know, so you can get somebody to wow face your post. And, and what, it, what it does is it creates this either instant validation or it creates the instant lack of validation yeah. for some as well, um, you know, and, and that can truly become addictive, especially if you're receiving validation in a positive way. Yeah, um, it, it can become addictive. In fact, there's there there are studies that show the lengths that people will go to to have their posts noticed, their posts noticed on social media, always having to increase, um, you know, maybe the the extreme nature of whatever they did before. You know, so mm-hmm. something can start out and, and it's pretty benign and maybe it gets some likes. How do I get more likes? I do a slightly more extreme version of what I did before. Mm-hmm. Um, you can see this in, in, in just, you know, I mean, we could dig into what social media posts look like, but you know, we'd be talking about things that, that would, would become inappropriate at some point in time because people go to inappropriate lengths yeah. to receive that, that like and yeah. that. Uh, that you know that validation, and so we, we live in a in a culture truly um, that that is self focused, self absorbed. Um, that, that truly, I think, struggles with the desire to see constantly ever increasing levels of self esteem and an ever growing self image. And, and truthfully, it's it's all unhealthy. So whether whether we achieve that by comparison or in comparison to others. Or whether we mm-hmm. don't, whether we fall on our face, it all leads to something that is completely unhealthy. So whether we end up with a very positive self-image or a very negative self-image, what we've been pursuing was unhealthy to begin with. So there's no way it can lead to a healthy view of self, either positively or negatively. Um, and the reality is too that it, I mean it, stri- it leads us to strive for ideals that that most of us will never be able to reach, right? Yeah. It leaves us filled with disappointment about the people that that we will never be but we're told that, that we should be, right? So again, it's, it, it's an extremely yeah. dysfunctional cycle um, and, and it's one that many are caught up in. Yeah, yeah, that's so, that's so true. I mean, yeah, no, we, we could talk about that a lot, but that's, that's really good. So, um, 
So why do you see then, Paul, why is it that, that humility before God is a better answer? Yeah, so, so what we're acknowledging, one, is maybe the reality um, that when we're framing it that way, humility before God being the better answer, um, we're, we're setting God as the standard to begin with, right? So mm-hmm. instead of comparing ourselves to others, we're moving away from that unhealthy comparison and we're starting to say, okay, who am I in relation to God? Okay, so when um, I think humility happens when we embrace honesty about two things in that sense. It's first an honesty about God. So who, who is God? Um, you know, so we see God clearly. Yep. Then honesty about ourselves. So, so let me say that. Okay. Um, let me say that in, in a fairly plain way. It's the way that I say it in the book as well. I, I think the moment that we begin to see God clearly is the moment that we begin to see ourselves clearly. Okay. Okay. And, and in a healthy fashion. Why is that? Um, so, think about Isaiah's moment before God. Okay. Um, who God was was inescapable as he just got a glimpse of him, mm-hmm. right? Now, mm-hmm. again, we don't have the benefit of that, but that's why we've been trying to set the stage for developing a healthy understanding of who God is by asking the question first, who is God? Mm-hmm. Then what does creation, if God is a creator, what does creation tell us about God? Okay, then what do we learn about the nature of God? So we're trying to get a clear picture of God by looking at Uh, what we learn about God in Scripture by looking at what we learn about God in nature. We're walking away, hopefully, as David was, because David, as far as we know, didn't have the benefit of Isaiah's experience. Uh, Isaiah obviously came roughly maybe, what, 400 years after David, but David didn't have the benefit of that type of experience to see God clearly, to be taken into his throne room, but David was still able to look in creation and walk away in awe of God, which we ought to be able to do as well. Okay, so we've been trying to, to set that framework, lay that foundation that, that God is uh, worthy of our awe, that God is truly majestic. When we see God that way, we, we do experience what Isaiah experienced, and we come to this place where we see ourselves clearly. Think about that moment where Isaiah sees God clearly. What is his response? Well, in comparison to God, who am mm-hmm. I? Right? Which is exactly what David says. Yeah. Who am I? Or he says, who, who are we that you should be mindful of us? And that is super healthy, again, because we start to see ourselves clearly in that moment. You'll never see yourself clearly by, compares, by comparing yourself mm. to others. Mm-hmm. But when you compare yourself to God, when He becomes the standard for righteousness, perfection, holiness, I mean, all this, you know, for goodness, then we start to see, again, as Isaiah says in Isaiah 64, uh, I think it's 64, 6, you know, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags before you. Mm-hmm. I mean, they are. That's, that's all we can conclude is we're doing our best, but our best is really not much in comparison to you. So it takes us to this place where we start to see that that we're not doing so hot no matter how hard we try, right? Yeah. Now, I know that, that sounds yeah. pretty depressing, right? I mean, it does. But, but again, remember that if we're actually going to the place where we're trying to find true self-worth, it's not by looking at our accomplishments. It's by understanding how God sees us and that regardless of the fact that, that we aren't doing so well, that our righteous acts are like filthy rags, 
God loves us deeply. Mm-hmm. So, so back to this idea, okay, the, the moment that we see God clearly, begin to see God clearly is the moment we begin to see ourselves clearly. I think if, if, if we allow ourselves to reflect on this, um, or maybe even if we've lived life for a while and we've got some practical experience under our belts, um, why that is so important is, is because as we come to that place of humility, Right, so we see God clearly, we see ourselves clearly, that moves us to humility. In fact, I, I said on Sunday morning, I said, you know, I think that's, that would be my best definition of humility. And I know there are loads of hu- definitions of what humility is, out there. The so, so seeing God clearly, seeing ourselves clearly. Yeah. Yeah. So seeing yourself for who you truly are, that's what humility actually okay. looks like, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So uh, the truth about that attitude of humility is that it is it is powerfully transformative or that that moves us to the place where we become ripe for experiencing true transformation i think it's the attitude of humility that maybe makes significant life change possible and and that's important because you know as i as i you know the line that i use is i finish up chapter five is this the road that we travel as we journey back toward relationship with the god we have sinned against is paved with humility (laughs) Right, so so the road that we travel, as we journey back toward the toward relationship with God, the God that we sin against, it's paved with the attitude of humility. Yeah. It, we're not going to journey that road if we're trying That's to good. pave it with pride. There's no way that we yeah. can. Yeah. It's only going to be paved with humility. So humility is power. It's powerfully puts yeah. us in a place where we're reg, uh, ready to experience true transformation. It's the attitude of humility that makes significant life change possible. That's good. Awesome. So this brings us to that final question of how can we practice kind of what we've learned this week to be faithful to Jesus? Okay, so um, so I want to take us to a section toward the end of uh, chapter 5, and I want us to try to embrace some of these practices that, uh, okay. that, that I kind of lay out there. And it's actually by, uh, by going and, and looking at um, three steps of the 12-step program, which is uh, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous uses mm-hmm, this, mm-hmm. Um, and, and there are other groups as well that use this, other recovery groups as well. Um, you know, when I was working uh, toward my master's degree in counseling, I actually had to go and spend some time with uh, 12-step program, and um, man, got, got to really see there's some really healthy things happening there because of the framework that they have adopted, which leads people to this place where transformation and change can happen. Yeah. Okay, so I just we're going to talk about steps one, two, and four out of okay. the twelve-step process, and then what I want to do is take those steps that are very contextualized for that experience for Alcoholics Anonymous, and then maybe contextualize them for a more general experience as we're trying to begin to to, to pave this way um, back to God with with humility, um, or or maybe get our hearts in the right place to mm-hmm. where we can start mm-hmm. this journey back toward God. So the first step is this. Um, step one in, uh, in the 12-step process says this, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. So, so talk about seeing yourself clearly and having this, um, this attitude in this heart that, um, that recognizes brokenness, that recognizes basically all of my trying is like filthy rags, mm-hmm. you know, in a sense. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm powerless. I, I, I cannot win this battle on my own, mm-hmm. okay? My life is unmanageable. Mm-hmm. I need something else. Well, that's what leads to step two. Um, you know, but before we do that real quick with step one, I think it's important for all of us to, to get to that point to where we say, 
I can't do this on my own. If I compare myself to others, you know, maybe one alcoholic could say, well, at least I'm not as bad as that alcoholic, right? Mm -hmm. But in relation to sin, we're all addicted to sin to some degree, right? So yeah. It's, yeah. it's sin that's led us away from God that's created the barrier between us and God that is uh, communicating to God, no, we'd rather have this than a relationship with you. And mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. so we're all addicted there on some level. So if I compare myself as a sinner to another sinner, I may walk away feeling better than another sinner who's worse than I am which, you know, Jesus actually points that out at one point in time, you know, two guys in the temple and one says, well, thank you for not making me like this sinner over here, right? That's not, that's not who we want to be. In fact, the one who was justified was the, that day was the one who said, forgive me, look at me. I, I know, I know I'm, I'm a mess, right? And so um, being at this place where we admit maybe first we're powerless, um, our lives are unmanageable, leads us to step mm -hmm. two in that mm -hmm. process, which is, this, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Now, um, initially in step two, AA pointed directly to God in this, right? Mm -hmm. So it didn't just say a power greater than ourselves. Um, that's become more the sanitized line at yeah. this point yeah. in time. You know, So uh, if you don't believe in the Christian God, well, you can believe in some other higher power or whatever. Um, the reality is we're pointing to the Christian God and we're basically <laughs> saying, look, <laughs> we came to believe that only God could help bring us back to sanity. Yeah. In other words, this admission yeah. that, you know, nobody likes, nobody likes to be at this place, you know, where they embrace the, the word insane in a sense, but to say, I, I have lost it so far that, that I, I, I can't guide myself back to the right path. Mm -hmm. I need someone, in fact, I need God um, to help lead me back to the right path. So to be at that place where, you're accepting your need for God. And then this, this last step that we'll look at, step four, uh, and this is really, you know, this will be kind of our takeaway for, for the week. Mm -hmm. uh, because I think most people that are listening to us would say, yeah, I, I buy into the idea of steps one and two. I, man, I know, that, I know that my life can be a mess. And if I, if I believe that it's not a mess, then I'm actually probably fooling myself and I'm playing the comparison game because I'm looking at this person, I'm saying, well, at least I'm not as much a mess as that person. You know, yes, I understand that I can't do this on my own, um, but here's what many of us have probably not done, and this is that Isaiah moment. Mm -hmm. um, step four is this, we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. So I took the time to reflect upon the truth of me in light of God. So I actually took the time to reflect upon the truth about myself in light of the truth of God. So it's yeah. leaned yeah. into that moment to try to see God clearly and then see myself clearly. Mm -hmm. you know, so th I, this is actually what I write about this in the book. Um, the courage and wisdom that moves one to embrace this fourth step amazes me. Why? Because looking inward, can be frightening, truly frightening. I mean, yeah. it can be. Yeah. You know, when we're truly honest with ourselves about ourselves, mm -hmm. that can mm -hmm. be frightening. You know, sometimes, you know, you can even do, I mean, uh, you know, um, uh, Jeff Henderson, who was uh, one of the, the uh, lead pastors of the, the North Point system for a time, mm -hmm. um, actually encourages people yearly to sit across from others and ask the question, what's, what's it like yeah. to experience me, basically? Yeah. You know, what do I look like to you? Um, and that can be frightening too, but what we're doing, whether we're looking inward or whether we're asking other folks to reflect upon who we are, uh, we're saying, tell me, tell me about me, really. 
<laughs> so that we can get an understanding of who we are that actually pushes us further toward leaning into that relationship with God and embracing the attitude of humility. Because again, remember, the road that we journey as we, as we move back toward relationship with God, I mean, it is paved with this attitude of humility. It creates the fertile soil for all change and transformation that will happen from this point forward. That's really good. Awesome. So that's a good, and it's a good, good step for this week. It's like it's a challenging one. That's right. It's a hard one, but um, it's been really good. So thank you, Paul. Thank you for sharing that and uh, for giving us some good, uh, a good takeaway to go on this week. Yeah, fearless moral um, inventory. That's right. So we thank you all for joining us today. Um, we are going to be continuing with this series next week. We've got three more weeks mm -hmm. to come in this. So we're going to keep moving forward with this. We hope you all will tune back, get, uh, back in next week for part six of this series. And thank you all so much for joining us today.